Chapter One of Mrs. Skaggs' Husbands and Other Stories by Bret Hart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Skaggs' Husbands, Part Two, East. It was characteristic of Angels that the disappearance of Johnson and the fact that he had left his entire property to Tommy thrilled the community but slightly in comparison with the astounding discovery that he had anything to leave. The finding of a cinnabar load at Angel's absorbed all collateral facts or subsequent details. Prospectors from adjoining camps thronged the settlement. The hillside for a mile on either side of Johnson's claim was staked out and preempted. Trade received a sudden stimulus, and in the excited rhetoric of the weekly record, a new era had broken upon angels. On Thursday last, added that paper, over five hundred dollars was taken in over the bar of the mansion house. Of the fate of Johnson there was little doubt. He had been last seen lying on a boulder on the river bank by outside passengers of the Wingdom night coach, and, when Finn of Robinson's Ferry admitted to have fired three shots from a revolver at a dark object struggling in the water near the ferry, which he suspicioned to be a bear, the question seemed to be settled. Whatever might have been the fallibility of his judgment, of the accuracy of his aim, there could be no doubt. The general belief that Johnson, after possessing himself of the muleteer's pistol, could have run amuck, gave a certain retributive justice to this story, which rendered it acceptable to the camp. It was also characteristic of Angel's that no feeling of envy or opposition to the good fortune of Tommy Islington prevailed there. That he was thoroughly cognizant from the first of Johnson's discovery, that his attentions to him were interested, calculating and speculative, was, however, the general belief of the majority a belief that, singularly enough, awakened the first feelings of genuine respect for Tommy ever shown by the camp. "'He ain't no fool. Yuba Bill see that from the first, said the barkeeper. It was Yuba Bill who applied for the guardianship of Tommy after his accession to Johnson's claim, and on whose bonds the richest men of Calaveras were represented. It was Yuba Bill also, when Tommy was sent east, to finish his education, accompanied him to San Francisco, and before parting with his charge on the steamer's deck, drew him aside and said, If at any time you want any money, Tommy, over and above your allowance, you can write. But if you'll take my advice, he added, with a sudden huskiness mitigating the severity of his voice, You'll forget every darn old spavined, string-halted bummer as you ever met or knew at Angel's. Every one, Tommy. Every one. And so, boy, take care of yourself, and, and God bless you. And particularly, damn me for a first-class A-1 fool. It was Yuba Bill also, after this speech, glared savagely around, walked down the crowded gangplank with a rigid and aggressive shoulder, picked a quarrel with his cabman, and, after bundling that functionary into his own vehicle, took the reins himself, and drove furiously to the hotel. "'It cost me,' said Bill, recounting the occurrence somewhat later at Angel's. 
It cost me a matter of twenty dollars afore the jedge the next morning. But you can bet high that I taught them Frisco chaps something new about driving. I didn't make it lively to Montgomery Street for about ten minutes. Oh, no. And so, by degrees, the two original locators of the great Cinnabar load faded from the memory of angels, and Calaveras knew them no more. In five years their very names had been forgotten. In seven the name of the town was changed. In ten the town itself was transported bodily to the hillside, and the chimney of the Union smelting works by night flickered like a corpse light over the site of Johnson's cabin and by day poisoned the pure spices of the pines. Even the mansion-house was dismantled, and the Wingdom stage deserted the highway for a shorter cut by Quicksilver City. Only the bared crest of Deadwood Hill, as of old, sharply cut the clear blue sky, and, at its base, as of old, the Stanislaus River, unwearied and unresting, babbled, whispered, and hurried away to the sea. A midsummer's day was breaking lazily on the Atlantic. There was not wind enough to move the vapors in the foggy offing, but where the vague distance heaved against a violet sky there were dull red streaks that, growing brighter, presently painted out the stars. Soon the brown rocks of Greyport appeared faintly suffused, and then the whole ashen line of dead coast was kindled, and the lighthouse beacons went out one by one, and then a hundred sail, before invisible, started out of the vapory horizon, and pressed toward the shore. It was morning, indeed, and some of the best society in Greyport, having been up all night, were thinking it was time to go to bed. For as the sky flashed brighter, it fired the clustering red roofs of a picturesque house by the sands that had all that night from open lattice and illuminated balcony given light and music to the shore. It glittered on the broad crystal spaces of a great conservatory that looked upon an exquisite lawn, where all night long the blended odors of sea and shore had swooned under the summer moon but it wrought confusion among the colored lamps on the long veranda, and startled a group of ladies and gentlemen who had stepped from the drawing-room window to gaze upon it. It was so searching and sincere in its way that as the carriage of the fairest Miss Gillyflower rolled away, that peerless young woman, catching sight of her face in the oval mirror, instantly pulled down the blinds and, nestling the whitest shoulders in Greyport against the crimson cushions, went to sleep. "'How haggard everybody is! Rose, dear, you look almost intellectual,' said Blanche Masterman. "'I hope not,' said Rose, simply. "'Sunrises are very trying. Look how that pink regularly puts out Mrs. Brown Robinson, hair and all.' The angels, said the Count de Nougat, with a polite gesture toward the sky, must have found these celestial combinations very bad for the toilette. They're safe in white, except when they sit for their pictures in Venice, said Blanche. How fresh Mr. Islington looks, 
It's really uncomplimentary to us. I suppose the son recognizes in me no rival, said the young man demurely. But, he added, I have lived much in the open air and require very little sleep. How delightful, said Mrs. Brown Robinson, in a low, enthusiastic voice and a manner that held the glowing sentiment of sixteen and the practical experience of thirty-two in dangerous combination. How perfectly delightful! What sunrises you must have seen, and in such wild romantic places! How I envy you! My nephew was a classmate of yours, and has often repeated to me those charming stories you tell of your adventures. Won't you tell some now? Do. How you must tire of us and this artificial life here. So frightfully artificial, you know? In a confidential whisper. And then to think of the days when you roamed the Great West with the Indians and the Bisons and the Grizzly Bears. Of course you have seen Grizzly Bears and Bison. Of course he has, dear said Blanche, a little pettishly, throwing a cloak over her shoulders and seizing her chaperone by the arm. His earliest infancy was soothed by bisons, and he proudly points to the grizzly bear as the playmate of his youth. Come with me, and I'll tell you all about it. How good it is of you, she added, sotto voce, to Islington, as he stood by the carriage. How perfectly good it is of you to be like those animals you tell us of, and not know your full power. Think, with your experiences and our credulity, what stories you might tell. And are you going to walk? Good night, then. A slim, gloved hand was frankly extended from the window, and the next moment the carriage rolled away. Isn't Islington throwing away a chance there? said Captain Merwin, on the veranda. Perhaps he couldn't stand my lovely aunt's superadded presence. But then, he's the guest of Blanche's father, and I dare say they see enough of each other as it is. But isn't it a rather dangerous situation? For him, perhaps, although he's awfully old and very queer. For her, with an experience that takes in all available men in both hemispheres, ending with Nugat over there, I should say a man more or less wouldn't affect her much, anyway. Of course, he laughed, these are the accents of bitterness, but that was last year. Perhaps Islington did not overhear the speaker. Perhaps, if he did, the criticism was not new. He turned carelessly away, and sauntered out on the road to the sea. Thence he strolled along the sands toward the cliffs, where, meeting an impediment in the shape of a garden wall, he leaped it with a certain agile, boyish ease and experience, and struck across an open lawn towards the rocks again. The best society of Greyport were not early risers and the spectacle of a trespasser in an evening dress excited only the criticism of grooms hanging about the stables, or cleanly housemaids on the broad verandas that in Greyport architecture dutifully gave upon the sea. 
Only once, as he entered the boundaries of Cliffwood Lodge, the famous seat of Renwick Masterman, was he aware of suspicious scrutiny. But a slouching figure that vanished quickly in the lodge offered no opposition to his progress. Avoiding the pathway to the lodge, Islington kept along the rocks until reaching a little promontory and rustic pavilion. He sat down and gazed upon the sea. And presently an infinite peace stole upon him. Except where the waves lapped lazily the crags below, the vast expanse beyond seemed unbroken by ripple, heaving only in broad ponderable sheets, and rhythmically as if still in sleep. The air was filled with a luminous haze that caught and held the direct sunbeams. In the deep calm that lay upon the sea, it seemed to Islington that all the tenderness of culture, magic of wealth, and spell of refinement that for years had wrought upon that favored shore had extended its gracious influence even here. What a pampered and caressed old ocean it was, cajoled, flattered, and faded where it lay, an odd recollection of the turbid Stanislaus hurrying by the ascetic pines, of the grim outlines of Deadwood Hill, swam before his eyes, and made the yellow-green of the velvet lawn and graceful foliage seem almost tropical by contrast. And looking up, a few yards distant, he beheld a tall slip of a girl gazing upon the sea. Blanche Masterman. She had plucked somewhere a large fan-shaped leaf, which she held parasol-wise, shading the blond masses of her hair and hiding her gray eyes. She had changed her festal dress, with its amplitude of flounce and train, for a closely fitting half-antique habit, whose scant outlines would have been trying to limbs less shapely but which prettily accented the graceful curves and sweeping lines of this Greyport goddess. As Islington rose, she came toward him with a frankly outstretched hand and unconstrained manner. Had she observed him first? I don't know. They sat down together on a rustic seat, Miss Blanche facing the sea and shading her eyes with the leaf. I really don't know how long I have been sitting here, said Islington, or whether I have not been actually asleep and dreaming. It seemed too lovely a morning to go to bed. But you? From behind the leaf, it appeared that Miss Blanche, on retiring, had been pursued by a hideous winged bug which defied the efforts of herself and made to dislodge. Odin, the spitz dog, had insisted upon scratching at the door, and it made her eyes red to sleep in the morning, and she had an early call to make, and the sea looked lovely. "'I'm glad to find you here, whatever be the cause,' said Islington, with his old directness. "'Today, as you know, is my last day in Greyport, and it is much pleasanter to say good-bye under this blue sky than even beneath your father's wonderful frescoes yonder.' I want to remember you, too, as part of this pleasant prospect which belongs to us all, rather than recall you in anybody's particular setting. I know 
said Blanche, with equal directness, that houses are one of the defects of our civilization. But I don't think I ever heard the idea as elegantly expressed before. Where do you go? I don't know yet. I have several plans. I may go to South America and become president of one of the republics. I am not particular which. I am rich. But in that part of America which lies outside of Greyport, it is necessary for every man to have some work. My friends think I should have some great aim in life, with a capital A. But I was born a vagabond, and a vagabond I shall probably die. I don't know anybody in South America, said Blanche languidly. There were two girls here last season, but they didn't wear stays in the house and their white frocks never were properly done up. If you go to South America, you must write to me. I will. Can you tell me the name of this flower which I found in your greenhouse? It looks much like a California blossom. Perhaps it is. Father bought it of a half-crazy old man who came here one day. Do you know him? Islington laughed. <laughs> I am afraid not. But let me present this in a less business-like fashion. Thank you. Remind me to give you one in return before you go. Or will you choose yourself? They had both risen as by common instinct. Goodbye. The cool, flower-like hand lay in his for an instant. Will you oblige me by putting aside that leaf a moment before I go? but my eyes are red and i look like a perfect fright yet after a long pause the leaf fluttered down and a pair of very beautiful but with a very clear and critical eyes met his islington was constrained to look away when he turned again she was gone mr islington sir it was chalker the english groom out of breath with running seeing you alone sir beg your pardon sir but there's a person a person what the devil do you mean speak english no damn it i mean don't said islington snappishly i said a person sir beg pardon no offence but not a gent sir in the library a little amused even through the utter dissatisfaction with himself and vague loneliness that had suddenly come upon him Islington, as he walked toward the lodge, asked, Why isn't he a gent? No gent, begging your pardon, sir, would guy a man in service, sir. Takes me and so, sir, as I sits in a rumble at the gate, and puts him down so, sir, and says, Put him in your pocket, young man, or is it a road agent you expects to see, that you holds up your hands, hands crosses him like to that, says he hard says he on the short curves or you'll bust your precious crust says he and asks for you sir this way sir they entered the lodge islington hurried down the long gothic hall and opened the library door in an armchair in the centre of the room a man sat apparently contemplating a large stiff yellow hat with an enormous brim that was placed on the floor before him. His hands rested lightly between his knees, 
but one foot was drawn up at the side of his chair in a peculiar manner. In the first glance that Islington gave, the attitude, in some odd, irreconcilable way, suggested a break. In another moment he dashed across the room, and, holding out both hands, cried, "'You've a bill!' The man rose, caught Islington by the shoulders, wheeled him round, hugged him, felt of his ribs like a good-natured ogre, shook his hands violently, laughed, and then said, somewhat ruefully, "'And how did you ever know me?' Seeing that Yuba Bill evidently regarded himself as in some elaborate disguise, Islington laughed, and suggested that it must have been instinct. "'And you?' said Bill, holding him at arm's length, and surveying him critically. "'You! To think! To think! A little cuss, no higher nor trace! A boy as I flicked out of the road with a whip time and again! A boy as never had much clothes to speak of! Turned into a sport!' Islington remembered, with a thrill of ludicrous terror, that he still wore his evening dress. "'Turned!' continued Yuba Bill severely turned into a restaurant waiter a garçon eh hey, alphonse bring me a patty de foie gras and an omelette demi <laughs> dear old chap said islington laughing and trying to put his hand over bill's bearded mouth but you you don't look exactly like yourself you're not well bill and indeed as he turned toward the light Bill's eyes appeared cavernous, and his hair and beard thickly streaked with gray. "'Maybe it's this here harness,' said Bill, a little anxiously. "'When I hitches on this here curb,' he indicated a massive gold watch-chain with enormous links, "'and mounts this morning star,' he points to a very large solitaire pin which had the appearance of blistering his whole shirt-front. It kind of weighs heavy on me, Tommy. Otherwise, I'm all right, my boy. All right. But he evaded Islington's keen eye and turned from the light. You have something to tell me, Bill, said Islington suddenly and with almost brusque directness. Out with it. Bill did not speak, but moved uneasily toward his hat. You didn't come three thousand miles without a word of warning to talk to me of old times said Islington, more kindly. Glad as I would have been to see you, it isn't your way, Bill, and you know it. We shall not be disturbed here, he added, in reply to an inquiring glance that Bill directed to the door. And I am ready to hear you. Firstly, then, said Bill, drawing his chair nearer Islington, answer me one question, Tommy. Fair and square, and up and down. Go on, said Islington, with a slight smile. If I should say to you, Tommy, say to you today, right here, you must come with me. You must leave this place for a month, a year, two years, maybe, perhaps forever. Is there anything that'd keep you? Anything, my boy, as you couldn't leave? No, said Tommy quietly. I am only visiting here. I thought of leaving Greyport today. But if I should say to you, Tommy, Come with me on a pacer to China, to Japan, to South America, perhaps. Could you go? Yes, said Islington, after a slight pause. There isn't anything, 
said Bill, drawing a little closer and lowering his voice confidentially. Anything in the way of a young woman? You understand, Tommy? This would keep you? They're mighty sweet about here. And whether a man is young or old, Tommy, there's always some woman as his breaker or whip to him. In a certain excited bitterness that characterized the delivery of this abstract truth, Bill did not see that the young man's face flushed slightly as he answered, No. Then listen. It's seven years ago, Tommy, that I was working one of the pioneer coaches over from Gold Hill. As I stood in front of the stage office, the sheriff of the county comes to me, and he says, Bill, says he, I've got a loony chap as I'm in charge of, taking him down to the asylum in Stockton. He's quiet and peaceful, but the insides don't like to ride with him. Have you any objection to giving him a lift on the box beside you? I says, no, put him up. When I came to go and get up on that box beside him, that man, Tommy, that man sitting there, quiet and peaceful, was Johnson. He didn't know me, my boy. Yuba Bill continued, rising and putting his hands on Tommy's shoulders. He didn't know me. He didn't know nothing about you, nor angels, nor the Quicksilver Lord, nor even his own name. He said his name was Skaggs, but I knowed it was Johnson. There was times, Tommy, you might have knocked me off that box with a feather. There was times when it was twenty-seven passengers at that stage that found themselves swimming in the American River five hundred feet below the road. I never could have explained it satisfactorily to the company. Never. The sheriff said, Bill continued hastily, as if to preclude any interruption from the young man, the sheriff said he had been brought into Murphy's camp three years before, dripping with water and suffering from percussion of the brain, and he had been cared for generally by the boys around. When I told the sheriff I knowed him, I got him to leave him in my care, and I took him to Frisco, Tommy, to Frisco, and I put him in charge of the best doctors there and paid his board myself. There was nothing he didn't have as he wanted. Don't look that way, my dear boy. For God's sake, don't. Oh, Bill, said Islington, rising and staggering to the window. Why did you keep this from me? Why? said Bill, turning on him savagely. Why? Because I weren't a fool. There was you, winning your way in college. There was you, rising in the world and of some account to it. Here was an old bummer, as good as dead to it. A man has oughter been dead afore. A man has never denied it. But you allers liked him better than me, said Bill bitterly. Forgive me, Bill, said the young man, seizing both his hands. I know you did it for the best, but go on. There ain't much more to tell, nor much use to tell it, as I can see said bill moodily he never could be cured the doctor said for he had what they called monomania was always talking about his wife and daughter that somebody had stole away years ago and planning revenge on that somebody and six months ago he was missed i tracked him to carson to salt lake city to omaha to chicago to new york and here here echoed islington here and that's what brings me here today. Whether he's crazy or well, whether he's hunting you or looking up that other man, you must get away from here. You mustn't see him. You and me, Tommy, 
We will go away on a cruise. In three or four years he'll be dead or missing, and then we'll come back. Come. And he rose to his feet. Bill, said Islington, rising also, and taking the hand of his friend, with the same quiet obstinacy that in the old days had endeared him to Bill. Wherever he is, here or elsewhere, sane or crazy, I shall seek and find him. Every dollar that I have shall be his. Every dollar that I have spent shall be returned to him. I am young yet, thank God, and can work. And if there is a way out of this miserable business, I shall find it. I knew, said Bill, with a surliness that ill-concealed his evident admiration of the calm figure before him, I knew the particular style of damn fool that you was, and expected no better. Goodbye, then. God almighty, who's that? He was on his way to open the French window, but had started back, his face quite white and bloodless, and his eyes staring. Islington ran to the window and looked out. A white skirt vanished around the corner of the veranda. When he returned, Bill had dropped into a chair. It must have been Miss Masterman, I think. But what's the matter? Nothing, said Bill faintly. Have you got any whiskey handy? Islington brought a decanter, and, pouring out some spirits, handed the glass to Bill. Bill drained it, and then said, Who is Miss Masterman? Mr. Masterman's daughter. That is, an adopted daughter, I believe. What name? I really don't know, said Islington, pettishly, more vexed than he cared to own at this questioning. Yuba Bill rose and walked to the window, closed it, walked back again to the door, glanced at Islington, hesitated, and then returned to his chair. I didn't tell you I was married, did I? <laughs> he said suddenly, looking up in Islington's face with an unsuccessful attempt at a reckless laugh. No, said Islington, more pained at the manner than the words. Fact, said Yuba Bill. Three years ago it was, Tommy. Three years ago. He looked so hard at Islington that, feeling he was expected to say something, he asked vaguely, Who did you marry? That's it, said Yuba Bill. I can't exactly say. Particularly, though, a she-devil. Generally, the wife of half a dozen other men. Accustomed, apparently, to have his conjugal infelicities a theme of mirth among men, and seeing no trace of amusement on Islington's grave face, his dogged, reckless manner softened, and, drawing his chair closer to Islington, he went on. It all began out of this. We was coming down Watson's grade one night pretty free, when the expressman turns to me and says, There's a row inside. You better pull up. I pulls up, and out hops, first, a woman and then two or three chaps swearing and cursing, and trying to drag someone out of them. Then it appeared, Tommy, that it was this woman's drunken husband they was going to put out for abusing her, and striking her in the coach. And if it hadn't been for me, my boy, they'd have left that chap there in the road. But I fixes matters up by putting her alongside of me on the box, and we drove on. She was very white, Tommy, for the matter of that, she was always one of those very white women that never got red in the face, but she never cried a whimper. Most women would have cried, 
It was queer, but she never cried. I thought so at the time. She was very tall, with a lot of light hair meandering down the back of her head, as long as a deerskin whiplash, and about the color. She had eyes that bored through you at fifty yards, and pooty hands and feet. And when she kind of got out of that stiff, nervous state she was in, and warmed up a little, and got chipper, by God, sir, she was handsome. She was that. A little flushed and embarrassed at his own enthusiasm, he stopped, and then said carelessly, They got off at Murphy's. Well, said Islington. Well, I used to see her often after that, and when she was alone she always took the box seat. She kind of confided her troubles to me. How her husband got drunk and abused her, and I didn't see much of him, for he was way in Frisco after that. But it was all square, Tommy, all square, twixt me and her. I got her going there a good deal, and then one day I says to myself, Bill, this won't do, and I got changed to another route. Did you ever know Jackson Filtree, Tommy? said Bill, breaking off suddenly. No. Might have heard of him, perhaps? No, said Islington impatiently. Jackson Filtree ran express from White's at the summit, crossed the North Fork of the Yuba. One day he says to me, Bill, that's a mighty bad ford at the North Fork. I says, I believe you, Jackson. It'll get me some day, Bill, sure, says he. I says, why don't you take the lower ford? I don't know, says he, but I can't. So ever after, when I met him, he says, that North Fork ain't got me yet. One day I was in Sacramento, and up comes Filtree. He says, I've sold out that express business on account of the North Fork. But it's bound to get me yet, Bill, sure. And he laughs. Two weeks after, they finds his body below the ford, where he tried to cross, coming down from the summit way. Folks said it was foolishness, Tommy. I says it was fate. The second day after, I was changed to the Placerville route. That woman comes out of the hotel above the stage office. Her husband, she said, was lying sick in Placerville. That's what she said. But it was fate, Tommy. Fate. Three months afterward, her husband takes an overdose of morphine for delirium trends and dies. There's folks says she gave it to him. But it's fate. A year after that, I married her. Fate, Tommy. Fate. I lived with her just three months he went on after a long breath three months it ain't much time for a happy man i seen a good deal of hard life in my day but there was days in that three months longer than any day in my life days tommy when it was a toss-up whether i should kill her or she me but there i'm done you are a young man tommy and i ain't going to tell you things that old as i am three years ago i couldn't have believed when at last with his grim face turned toward the window, he sat silently with his clinched hands on his knees before him. Islington asked where his wife was now. Ask me no more, my boy, no more. I've had my say. With a gesture as of throwing down a pair of reins before him, he rose and walked to the window. You can understand, Tommy, why a little trip round the world will do me good. If you can't go with me, well and good. But go I must. Not before luncheon, I hope, said a very sweet voice, 
as Blanche Masterman suddenly stood before them. Father would never forgive me if in his absence I permitted one of Mr. Islington's friends to go in this way. You will stay, won't you? Do. And you will give me your arm now, and when Mr. Islington has done staring, he will follow us into the dining-room and introduce you. I have quite fallen in love with your friend, said Miss Blanche, as they stood in the drawing-room looking at the figure of Bill strolling with his short pipe in his mouth through the distant shrubbery. He asked very queer questions, though. He wanted to know my mother's maiden name. He is an honest fellow, said Islington gravely. You are very much subdued. You don't thank me, I dare say, for keeping you and your friend here. But you couldn't go, you know, until father returned. Islington smiled, but not very gaily. And then I think it is much better for us to part here, under these frescoes, don't you? Goodbye. She extended her long, slim hand. Out in the sunlight there, when my eyes were red, you were very anxious to look at me she added in a dangerous voice. Islington raised his sad eyes to hers. Something glittering upon her own sweet lashes trembled and fell. Blanche! She was rosy enough now, and would have withdrawn her hand, but Islington detained it. She was not quite certain, but that her waist was also in jeopardy. Yet she could not help saying, are you sure that there isn't anything in the way of a young woman that would keep you? Blanche, said Islington, in reproachful horror, if gentlemen will roar out their secrets before an open window with the young woman lying on the sofa on the veranda reading a stupid French novel, they must not be surprised if she gives more attention to them than her book. Then you know all, Blanche? I know, said Blanche. Let's see. I know the particular style of <clears throat> fool you was, and expected no better. Goodbye. And, gliding like a lovely and innocent milk snake out of his grasp, she slipped away. To the pleasant ripple of waves, the sound of music and light voices, the yellow midsummer moon again rose over Greyport. It looked upon formless masses of rock and shrubbery, wide spaces of lawn and beach, and a shimmering expanse of water. It singled out particular objects, a white sail inshore, a crystal globe upon the lawn, and flashed upon something held between the teeth of a crouching figure scaling the low wall of Cliffwood Lodge. Then, as a man and woman passed out from under the shadows of the foliage into the open moonlight of the garden path, the figure leaped from the wall and stood erect and waiting in the shadow. It was the figure of an old man with rolling eyes, his trembling hand grasping a long, keen knife. A figure more pitiable than pitiless, more pathetic than terrible. But the next moment the knife was stricken from his hand, and he struggled in the firm grasp of another figure that apparently sprang from the wall beside him. Damn Masterman! cried the old man hoarsely. Give me fair play, and I'll kill you yet. Which my name is Yuba Bill, said Bill quietly, and it's time this damn foolin' was stopped. The old man glared in Bill's face savagely. I know you, 
You're one of Masterman's friends, damn you! Let me go till I cut his heart out! Let me go! Where is my Mary? Where is my wife? There she is! There! 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 Mary! He would have screamed, but Bill placed his powerful hand upon his mouth as he turned in the direction of the old man's glance. Distinct in the moonlight, the figures of Islington and Blanche, arm in arm, stood out upon the garden path. "'Give me my wife!' muttered the old man hoarsely, between Bill's fingers. "'Where is she?' A sudden fury passed over Yuba Bill's face. "'Where is your wife?' he echoed, pressing the old man back against the garden wall and holding him there as in a vice. "'Where is your wife?' he repeated, thrusting his grim, sardonic jaw and savage eyes into the old man's frightened face. "'Where is Jack Adams' wife? Where's my wife? Where is that she-devil that drove one man mad, that sent another to hell by his own hand, and eternally broke and ruined me? Where? Where? Do you ask where? In jail, in Sacramento. In jail, do you hear? In jail for murder, Johnson, murder!' The old man gasped, stiffened, and then, relaxing, suddenly slipped a mere inanimate mass at Yuba Bill's feet. With a sudden revulsion of feeling, Yuba Bill dropped at his side, and, lifting him tenderly in his arms, whispered, Look up, old man, Johnson, look up, for God's sake, it's me, Yuba Bill, and yonder is your daughter, and Tommy, don't you know Tommy? little tommy islington johnson's eyes slowly opened he whispered tommy yes tommy sit by me tommy but don't sit so near the bank don't you see how the river is rising and beckoning to me hissing and boiling over the rocks it's getting higher hold me tommy hold me and don't let me go yet we'll live to cut his heart out tommy we'll live we'll his head sank and the rushing river, invisible to all eyes save his, leaped toward him out of the darkness, and bore him away, no longer to the darkness, but through it to the distant, peaceful, shining sea. End of chapter 1